The world as we know it continues to evolve and change into something that we can only hope to understand. This is why the registry continues to provide industry insights through personal interviews with the leaders who are shaping real estate on a daily basis. By subscribing to our podcast, you are helping us in our work, and we will continue to deliver programming such as the one you're about to hear. Please click the subscribe button and let your friends and colleagues know about us. It will help you and the industry stay ahead of the game. David Greensfelder is a managing principal at Greensfelder Real Estate Strategy and a founding advisor at a retail development e-commerce enterprise called True Local. David works nationally with companies in providing strategic planning, market analytics, and location intelligence, and real estate development services to occupiers, communities, financial institutions, and investors nationally. Always focused on practical solutions and implementation, David pioneered the retail resilience a quadruple bottom-line discipline for creating lasting retail vitality and dynamic, flexible, and adaptable retail strategies and recommendations for communities, owners, and retailers. We sit down with David to get a perspective on the industry and how the current environment will shape the real estate world in the years to come. Welcome, David. David, good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm I'm doing well. I'm doing well in these sort of waning days of of August, getting ready to start to school. I suppose next week with our kids, and uh, you know, going through this grand experiment like every other family. I suppose. Um, where Where do we find you today? Um, you know, shockingly at my home office, which I think is where most of us are these yeah. days. Yeah. And. You know, my my son's downstairs in his senior year of high school. My wife is uh, um, out in the garage at a conference. So uh, we're all living the dream yeah. like everyone else. <laughs> and, and we should probably uh, clarify that the conference is not in the garage, right? It's a virtual <laughs> conference, right? I'm, I'm not getting involved with that. <laughs> great, great, great. Um, well, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Um, by, you know, by way of introduction, um, you know, would you mind kind of telling us a little bit about yourself, you know, what you do, uh, where you do it, how you do it, and kind of like your sort of sphere of influence, if you will? Sure, I'd be, I'd be happy to. So I am an urban planner and economist that specializes in projects where there's a retail component, a significant retail component or mixed use component. I've spent my entire career in retail. So um, that's the reason for that. And uh, I work nationally, um, have projects going uh, from you know East Coast to West Coast, um, a number of projects in Hawaii, which um, is just adding insult to injury because I can't get there. Yes, uh, to work on them in person, um, and I uh, you know I'm I'm also involved in a number of other things. I'm uh, on the board of an affordable housing developer here in the Bay Area. I do a lot of volunteer work with the Urban Land Institute, um, the Urban Plan Program, doing work for advisory services, and then also lecture at the School of Professional Development, also uh, UC Berkeley, um, guest lecturer, um, so variety of things. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty broad scope of, uh, of, uh, of area. So 
obviously you you know mentioned retail and and you kind of you know said that you know this is one of your areas that that you specialize in and you know mixed use and um you know you, you and I actually met about 5 years or so ago and we we were speaking at a at a at a conference together about this and kind of other things and there were certain trends that were emerging at that point in time, which probably you know were, were evolving in a certain pattern, you know, towards the the end of 2019. Be- before we kind of get into you know what the impact of COVID has been on all of that, could you kind of give us a little bit of a sense of you know of, you know since the last recession, kind of wh- where have some of those trends you know been going, and kind of where the evolution was was pointing to us or pointing us to rather? Well, you know. There, there are a lot of trends that have been going on, um, you know, of course, since the last recession. With, with retail, you know, retail's been consolidating pretty significantly. Lots of closures, lots of um, acquisitions. And, uh, you know, and that trend is only sped up and then it's, it's sped up significantly because of COVID. You know, since the last recession also, I think that last mile is perhaps the biggest trend in real estate, period. Yeah. Affecting all asset classes. Office has, you know, continued to evolve and like retail is going through this huge upheaval because of COVID and, you know, and how we use our public space because of what's happening uh, with retail and office and last mile is uh, more of a issue than than it's ever been. Yeah, and so now now what what now happens with all of those trends given kind of what's transpired around the world in the last you know six months or so? You know, I I think that you know I might be I might be giving my age away here, but you know things are just speeding up like crazy, particularly with retail. It's yeah. like listening to a 33 RPM record on the 78 speed. If you ever used to do that when you were a kid, and you know millennials had had already started moving back out of the cities and into the suburbs. You could see that inflection point in 2015, and you know coincidentally that was uh, that cohort was in full swing into family formation, and the idea of raising kids in a one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco or Seattle wasn't quite as appealing as it initially seemed like it was going to be, and and you know probably especially when Junior suddenly realized that he or she could move, you know, but at the same time that that was already happening you're now seeing because of covid you know 10 years of evolution that's now getting crammed into probably a 9 to 12 month period you know just to just to give an idea and i you know go down a rabbit hole for just a second here with retail we purchase commodities much differently than we purchase specialty goods yeah and you know i i tend to think of commodities as things that are the same regardless of where you get them so, you know, a water bottle, you, you know, reusable water bottle or a phone, you know, you could purchase it from an airport vending machine, a store online. It's exactly the same thing. There's no emotional connection to it. It's just a trade-off between price and convenience. But, you know, specialty goods, you know, those and uh, buying those involve allocating scarce resources like discretionary income that's not earmarked for necessities like shelter and groceries and and discretionary time that's not devoted to work or school and because those are limited resources there's an emotional connection 
And so a sense of place becomes really important. So, you know, for example, when you go out to a white tablecloth dinner, you know, you head to a high street or to a lifestyle center. You don't go for a nice white tablecloth dinner in a big box shopping center. Yeah. Right? The reason I the reason that I bring that up is that, you know, when we talk about how retail is evolving, commodity and specialty, it's really describing our behaviors. Right. And how how we go about acquiring things. And that was already changing pretty significantly, but it's it's now changing at lightning speed. And you know, part of that was it became unsafe to go out to get things. Yeah. We wanted things brought to us. All the people who were selling specialty goods suddenly looked up and said, wait a minute, you know, where do we fit into this? You know, commodities are easy to buy online. But specialty goods, you know, how do you have a nice white tablecloth dinner online? You know, how do you how do you bring that experience home when you can't go to it? And so there's been all kinds of evolution in a very short time to figure out how to make that happen, whether it's, you know, DoorDash or Uber Eats, where the white tablecloth restaurant is sending a fully prepared, nice white tablecloth dinner home so that you can enjoy it there and have that experience and they can they can still maintain their branding. You know, likewise, Last Mile got exercised pretty heavily. And we went from going out to get things to, uh, to having everything brought to us. I heard somebody joking that their friend said that they finished Netflix and their joke was that, you know, well, we finished Amazon. We've already bought one of <laughs> right. everything that Amazon sells. <laughs> right. There are huge implications for that. Yeah. Not the least of which is that it's incredibly inefficient to take a truck and a driver and allocate those resources, you know, not to mention, you know, the gas and the maintenance on the truck and the driver getting to to the distribution center to in their car to get the truck all to be able to bring you a tube of toothpaste yeah and not only that but when you order you know five or six different things online that's five or six different trucks and you've got packaging materials and how do you get rid of the packaging materials so you have all of these inefficiencies that went into our acquiring the things that we needed to stay alive from day to day so how is that beginning to play forward and, and that's not to say anything of the carbon footprint of operating that way. It's not, it's not sustainable in the immediate term. You know, it was necessary. But how does how does that begin to evolve? And yeah. one place it has is, you know, I can now choose to have all of my Amazon stuff delivered on one day of the week, yeah. you know, which we do. Because, I mean, how many things do we really get from Amazon that we need tomorrow? And and as you and as you look at kind of what, what that means for space, as if you if you look at kind of what, what that means for, um, you know, that kind of, you know, product and how it's designed and the inventory of that product, what, what, is, what does that mean for our cities and our society in general? You know, let's go to New York for a minute. And so, you know, assuming that the New York MSA has about 20 million residents, um, they had about two and a half million commercial deliveries a day. Ten years ago, uh, so, so that's, that's 0.12 commercial deliveries per resident. Ten years ago, they had 0.04 deliveries personal deliveries, yep. private deliveries per resident. In the course of 10 years, that went to the same 0.12 as the commercial. So there was a tripling of personal deliveries in the New York MSA. 
So what does that mean? Um, it means that as many as a quarter of the zip codes in Manhattan literally don't have enough street space for the deliveries. And the rate of private deliveries is going to continue to increase. Because of COVID, we're finding that that is speeding up, not slowing down. It was already speeding up, but now the rate of increase has increased. And, you know, so what do you do? You know, a lot of people immediately say, oh, Oh, you know, you know, we've got to regulate the truck. I mean, you can only allow trucks here. You can allow trucks there. We've got to put restrictions on them. But, you know, the truck represents economic activity, right? Right. So if you regulate the truck, you're regulating economic activity. And the goal certainly is not to regulate the economic activity. The goal is to regulate the negative externality that falls off the economic activity. Right. So the negative extern an externality is something that wasn't priced into the transaction. It would be the, uh, you know, the carbon footprint of having the tube of toothpaste delivered, for example, or it would be the streets being clogged with so many delivery trucks. Yep. You know, we are now finding that we're trying to figure out how to manage the negative externalities caused by our behavior, principally buying commodity goods and services. But now we're taking specialty goods and services and, and layering all of those onto it also. It hasn't been quite as much of a problem because we've all been working from home. So we're not driving around, we're not commuting, you don't see streets nearly as clogged as you did pre-COVID. But What's going to happen when our consumption behaviors remain the same, but our work behaviors begin to normalize? Are you are you also noticing the impact? And maybe it's too early, but I've uh, certainly received a number of reports over the last couple of months indicating that you know people suburban. Uh, you know, product seems to be moving relatively quickly. And I mean, by, you know, single family homes, does that mean, is that an indication of, you know, people moving out? And you, you mentioned this trend has already kind of, you know, happened, but do, do you see an acceleration of that? And then could that potentially release some of that pressure? So even if the, you know, number of deliveries continues to go up per, you know, capita, you still maybe have that be okay if people are moving out of that environment. Okay on one scale, maybe not okay on another scale. Yeah. In California, we've been, you know, incredibly focused on trying to get our carbon footprint under control. And suburbanization implies greater carbon footprint because it's, you know, more of a suburban form, suburban model. It's more auto-oriented, less walkable, less dense all of those sorts of things. Yeah. So, you know, are we seeing a de-urbanization? I think that you've got to look at the answer to that in different time contexts. So on the immediate versus intermediate versus long-term timelines, I think you're definitely seeing some of that on an intermediate and an immediate time frame. But long-term, I really question whether we're going to end up seeing the kind of de-urbanization that people are talking about going forward, you know, that we, we had this move from the suburbs to the city, you know, is, is that just reversed? Has it all gone back? Well, you know, we knew it was going back some, but is it going to go back completely? Yeah. Um, and and I, I don't think, so. I, I think that there's some things that, some givens that we've got to assume that are not going to change. 
for example, our population continues to increase. And the increase in population continues to concentrate in certain parts of the country, like the Sun Belt, for example. Yeah. So as that continues to happen, it really implies you know, continued urbanization and even urbanization of suburbs. I think what we're really seeing is an evolution in terms of how we behave. But things are going to be more distributed than they were before. What does that what does that mean then, you know, going forward? Like if you were to, you know, advise somebody or advise a city or advise a, you know, region in terms of how to tackle that, where where would you advise they put their resources? I think that that's a time frame issue. You know, immediately, I think you put your sources on living to see another day in terms of, you know, I mean, right now we're in this trade-off of trying to balance public health and economic activity. I mean, right. I mean, isn't that fundamentally the conversation that everybody's having, even if they're not conscious that that's the conversation they're having? You know, do am I going to wear a mask? Am I not going to wear a mask? Am I going to stand six feet away from somebody or not stand six feet away? Are we going to gather in small groups or big groups or no groups? Are we going to stay home? Are we going to have school? Are we not going to have school? It's all public health versus economic activity. And in the in the near term here, it is. you know, we're trying to figure out how to go about our lives and do what we do without become, you know, without becoming, you know, significantly ill or, you know, risking being significantly ill. And that's that's a tough dance. It's a particularly tough dance when the messaging is really kind of all over the place. So, you know, so what can communities do in the immediate term and in the intermediate term? You know, I think it is what you're seeing in a lot of places where you figure out how to allow commerce to move forward. So is that taking the uh, public space like a street or a sidewalk and allowing a restaurant to basically move their inside food service outside? Yeah. And, you know, and spread tables out so that people can come and enjoy a meal. I mean, that's that's commerce. Is it retailers that have really learned how to do a great buy online pickup in store model or a you know just come queue up buy in store model but that then means that you're using public space to have the little tape marks on the sidewalks so that everybody is staying properly spaced so that they can stay safe while they're in line waiting to get into the store or pick up at the pass through window or whatever it might be having Retailers and property owners and cities sending consistent messages to consumers about what is okay and reasons they're making things okay and reasons consumers should feel safe and, and secure coming out of their homes and, and participating in commerce. Those are all really important, not just from an economic perspective, but also from a social perspective. We actually get to get out, you know, and see each other. I mean, we might not recognize each other behind the mask, but at least we're seeing each other. And I think that's really important. Yeah. There's been a lot of talk about sort of, you know, last mile, uh, both from a transportation point of view, from a delivery of goods point of view, from kind of creating uh, both offices and kind of housing around sort of certain transportation nodes and kind of proximity to those usually around public transportation, right? 
Yep. But public transportation, I would argue in you know many ways, you know, is impacted it now. I I I I you know believe that certainly, you know, BART in the Bay Area and uh I know the MTA and New York City are, you know, experiencing, you know, huge revenue shortages and they can't sort of meet their budgets, right? So what what does this portend do you think for public transportation and kind of this this sort of idea of you know being proximate to to these transportation nodes is that is that going to matter as much going going forward is it just a temporary kind of thing now do you think or do you think it might have a lasting impact oh i i think that you're gonna see a lasting impact and i think that I think the nature of the impact is going to evolve over time. This seems like it's a great time to talk about office and what the workplace is going to look like. You know, so if you go back 30 years ago, IBM tried this, uh, you know, huge experiment um, having everybody in the distributed workplace. Yeah. And, you know, and not having offices. And it was it was a huge failure. And IBM brought everybody back into the office. But the difference between 30 years ago and now is that we've got technology that we take for granted now that you know really fundamentally didn't exist even for tech companies 30 years ago yeah and you know collaboration software video conferencing i mean those things that are you know are here to stay you know you you have a weekly family get together on zoom i mean we i mean talk about how things have changed when was the last time you played you played parlor games? We did a we did a Zoom charade with our friends. It was hilarious <laughs> right. because Zoom doesn't duplex very right. well. But you know, here's a stat I heard is that before COVID, Zoom was doing about 10 million users a day. On Monday, when Zoom crashed uh, because so many schools went back online. They were doing 300 million. Wow. You know, we've got the ability to do distributed workplace in a way that we didn't have before. And and here's so here's a really paradoxical um, stat that I just read this morning that Cushman and Wakefield and Gensler both did independent surveys and they both came to similar conclusions that Gen Z and millennials are more desirous of getting back into the workplace compared to boomers. Boomers, I mean, People, people my age, well, I'm not, I'm just barely not a boomer, but, you know, people my age, you know, we're happy working at home. And, and, you know, and it kind of makes sense a little bit. You know, we were more established. We've got homes that probably have space for being able to work at home. And so we've got better options available to us and we're less likely to have distractions like roommates. At the same time, employers are looking up and and we're seeing them all over the place. So, you know, Ford, for example, is having headquarters employees clean out their offices. They're coming in systematically, you know, masked up with, you know, service, you know, facility services people helping them and cleaning out offices that sometimes they've been in for years or maybe even decades. Yeah. And they're using COVID as an opportunity to rethink who gets work done and where they get it done. And how are they going to reconfigure their office space for fewer in-office employees and, you know, perhaps hotel desks for employees who don't always need to be in the office? And then in contrast, okay, so so you probably can't get more old economy than Ford, okay? And they're thinking in terms of distributed workplace. Right. And so here's the killer. 
Amazon is expanding offices in six cities, planning to, you know, add 3,500, 4,000 right. jobs, 900,000 square feet of office space in six cities alone. It says a lot about management's view about the value of office work. But then at the same time, Twitter and Facebook are going a different direction. So for offices, the pandemic is really, I think, speeding up evolution of, of how and where we work much in, at the same speed as, you know, retail. And, you know, there's definitely going to be distributed working that's going to stick. I mean, there's just no question about that. And there are platforms that are going to allow us to do that. At the same time, I think as we get more towards long term, you know, that it's going to normalize. You know, the, the, boom, the, the pendulum swung fast because it had to. We literally went to working at home overnight. And the question is, you know, where's that pendulum going to end up um, at the end of the day? I, I kind of think about it this way. If you go back to 9-11, you know, we had 9-11 and suddenly, you know, we had a completely different flying experience. It was nuts. I mean, we were worried about people blowing up airplanes with shoes and with their underwear and, yeah. you know, every which thing. And getting through airport security was a, you know, a minor act of God. But now, or pre-COVID at least, we were at record travel levels and had been for years. So we learned how to adapt and work is going to do the same thing and retail is going to do the same thing. So pendulum swung huge, hugely. It's going to swing back. Um, it's going to be in a different place, but it's going to normalize once we have a sense of how we're going to be able to move forward safely. And yeah. that's not going to happen until we have two things. Um, you know, one is a vaccine or medical protocols to treat COVID. I, I think that that's, uh, in a way, the answer to that question. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. And everything that we've seen also from not just from my personal point of view, but just from my observation of, of industry and economy in general, you know, you always settle on, on a new normal. You don't go back to whatever was the normal previously or, you know, years ago, right? Um, uh, that that I think seems to be kind of a natural way of of these things um, evolving, if you will. So, if you look at some kind of big kind of meta trends that that you think will will you know shape that uh, in the next you know five ten years or so, what what would those be? Well, you know, in in terms of in terms of larger trends, I think that you're going to continue to see urbanization as a function of increase in population density. You know, it's gonna take us a while to, I mean, when, when COVID is under control, whatever that means, it's gonna take us a while to trust that it's under control. You know, just to, I mean, I remember, I was in Los Angeles for the Northridge earthquake in 1994. And, you know, normally driving in Los Angeles, it's kind of like playing rugby, you <laughs> yeah. know, and people are honking and trying to get around people and everybody's, you know, having their thing. And right after the earthquake, I remember, you know, people, there'd be a red light and the red light would be under a freeway overpass and people would stop short of the freeway overpass and everybody got it. I mean, nobody was honking, nobody was judging. People were like, oh yeah, that's smart. Yeah. And, you know, and after a while, you know, we got to the point where we would pull up to the red light like we would before the earthquake, but it took a while. That's going to happen with everything. I mean, we are going to have some collective PTSD from this. And when we finally emerge from our caves, 
you know, are people going to be shaking hands? Um, I'm guessing that it's going to take a while for that to come back. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, just out of the abundance of caution that we've all taken on. In terms of larger trends, I think that we're going to see, we're going to consume and work differently, like we've already talked about. I don't know how much we're going to end up living differently, uh, particularly in the more crowded metropolitan areas. And that is, you know, partly because we have such a, you know, such a shortage of housing. Yeah. You know, it's particularly true in California and in the Bay Area, you know, and I'm saying nine Bay Area counties. I think the number that I heard that just And and this is even having been involved in affordable housing for years and having been well aware of this. But the number I heard was there were something like a million dwelling units short of equilibrium. Yeah. And are people fleeing or rents in San Francisco or downtown Seattle coming down? Is all of that happening? Yeah, absolutely. Are millennials going to the suburbs because they need room? Uh, to raise families. Yeah, but are boomers beginning to give up their homes and wanting to move into more urban areas as they begin to retire and want, um, you know, want a different lifestyle? I mean, do we really want to keep maintaining a house and a yard and all that kind of stuff when we can just slam a door and go travel? I just don't think that cities are going to empty out. I, you know, we just, we fundamentally are short of housing and we've got an increasing population. And if you do the math, it's not going to happen. We can't afford to have our cities empty out, but how we go about living in them and working in them is going to be much different. Um, You could certainly see less commuting. You could see fewer than 400, 450,000 people a day being on BART because you know what? I don't need to be in the office every day. And it's pretty much accepted that I can get my job done and be accountable uh, working remotely. And, and as far as consuming, how is that going to happen? One of the things that I think is going to happen is that independent retail is going to be the shining star at the end of COVID. Because you know, at, at the end of the day, the independent local retailer has their ear to the ground. I mean, they know their customers. They know their customers' names. They know what their customers want, what they're comfortable with, what they're not comfortable with. And they have the ability to adjust a whole lot easier than a chain that's got 500, 1,000, 2,000 stores, you know, that's operating off of a planogram. And not only that, but entrepreneurs are just nimble. And so if you've got somebody that's got one stores, two stores, four stores, and they really can listen to their customer base, they're going, they're the ones who are adjusting. They're the ones who are figuring it out and they're going to lead the way to how things are going to be different. There is a scrappiness to entrepreneurs that is just absolutely going to shine through this. Agreed. And in the column of uh, sort of looking at kind of urbanization and, and you know, trends, do you see a continued rise in some of these secondary cities um, as a result of, uh, you know, you know, housing shortage? So, you know, people from the Bay Area are moving to Denver and Austin and Salt Lake City and Portland and in other places like that, do do you feel that continuing to evolve along with these kind of mega regions growing at the same time, uh, or 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 how, what's what's your perspective there? Again, you know, it's it's distributed, and uh, and so if you are in the Bay Area, and you know, and and you know, Bend, please forgive me for using you as an example, but. You know, you just want to get out of here and, you know, go someplace that's got 
um, a different pace and a different quality of life and you know you can work remotely hey you know bend oregon's a lovely place and you know and and we're gonna pack up the truck and off we go um yeah i i think that's absolutely gonna happen and it's going to it's going to cause it's it's going to cause again that it's all part of where that pendulum is swinging at the end of the day i think that because commerce is concentrated in large cities that secondary markets are going to do well but secondary markets doing well does not mean that cities are going to die yeah david before we close off if you could look at you know what brings you hope in terms of uh you know the next uh decade uh what what would those things be you know we've got the entire world trying to solve a single problem right now and we're making progress or at least we're being told we're making progress at unprecedented rates i i think that our trying to solve the covid problem is really bodes well for other huge problems that we need to solve it really speaks volumes to being able to work uniformly towards a common goal i think the question is what are the common goals going to be yeah. you know will it be environmental issues will it be social justice issues will it be economic issues but it gives me a huge amount of hope i i think the thing that distresses me and that I hope is part of the conversation going forward is that COVID has laid bare inequity. And it, it just makes so clear how we really need to be thinking about equity issues, both from an economic and from a social perspective. I just, you know, I mean, like I said, I've been doing retail real estate my entire career and you can't be a developer and not be an optimist yeah it's just <laughs> that's it's right part of the, it's part of the job description you know there's a certain amount of cognitive dissonance that involves in going to work every morning yeah i i just i i want to believe that we are going to have a different sense of ourselves and a different sense of our ability to adjust and adapt and survive because we've shown that it's possible to do on just a scale that would have been incomprehensible in early you know in a, a year ago i mean if if you if if you had predicted we were going to be where we are now with all the adjustments that we've made a year ago you know people would have laughed well on that note david thank you for your thoughts and uh, stay safe and stay well same to you and thanks very much for having me